Welcome everybody once again to That took a very long time for you to move across and now you're burping into nothing. You, you no, can no, talk. No, 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 no. no, okay, I thought you were uh, about to talk. How, how are you today? Specifically today, not just this week, today. Dad, because I want all the Thanksgiving food, but we can't have it. Is, it. is that Thanksgiving right? Now, did we talk about this last week? No, did no? we? I don't know. Is it Canadian Thanksgiving now? Like yeah. this coming Monday? This is two in a row you've missed? Is it? Which is sad. Yeah, I want mashed potatoes. What is more important? That's. I think that's the only thing that we can't really have in pumpkin pie. What is the most important? We could have the rest of Thanksgiving. What is the most important thing to Canadians, uh, Halloween or Thanksgiving? What's more important to? I would say Halloween. Really? Well, no, I would say Thanksgiving, but I think some other people would say Halloween, but I would say Thanksgiving. Did, did you do the whole trick-or-treating thing when you were a kid? Yeah, we had the best costumes. What, what did name me some three costumes that you dress up as? Juice box, toast, <laughs> one die like a dice, but a singular. I'm dice. sorry, sorry. Let's go back to juice box and toast. Like, how does one go? My sh- mom was awesome. Did she literally make you a piece of bread? Um. Yeah. So we had this foam store, like a mattress store, I think, and we got this giant piece of foam. Jared was an egg. He was a fried <laughs> egg, and I was a piece of toast. <laughs> Please tell me there's photos that exist somewhere of this. I'm sure there are. And and the the juice box? It was made out of a par- cardboard box, and I don't remember what the actual straw was made out of, but it was like my entire body size. Can we next year go trick-or-treating? I mean, I guess. Uh, the, the one time I've been trick-or-treating in my life, I was 29, and I dressed as Australian Barack Obama because it was literally the only costume I could make in like 30 seconds when I landed in Atlanta. And you shook the hand of the man who gave you candy. But but like, is it weird for adults to go yes. trick? Yes. Well, do, don't you know children? We can, can chaperone some children. Do, who do who do you know that would like? I don't know. Like, can we just steal some kids for the night or something like that? Like, yeah. Like just say because I I like I think this is a thing now moving to Canada that I need to experience this like it's not it's it's discrimination that as an Australian I I haven't just you know I've I've had thirty two years of my life well thirty one I did it once thirty one years without doing this so I've got to catch up but we can hand out candy yeah but, but it's not the same I like handing out candy I want to like I want to get candy I want to <laughs> dress up can we dress up if people show up to our house yeah can we I want to dress up as what can I dress up as can I dress up as Justin Trudeau? Yes. Like, I mean, I could wear blackface. That would kind of be... <laughs> no. <laughs> Not that I would want to. Not that I would want to. But that was, yeah. Uh, that's only relevant in 2019, probably. Um, she's running away she, from me right now. She's going to pee. Um, she couldn't have held off like 30 seconds until I pressed uh, stop in this segment. That's... Awkward. Let's commentate Mallory going to the bathroom. She's removing her pants. She's taking down her underwear. She's looking She's looking at me and telling me to stop. She doesn't look impressed. She's still looking at me. But now the pants come down fully. <laughs> she's telling me to stop again. Siggy is eating his food as he does that. She gives me a less impressed look with a frowny face as the urine expels into the bathroom toilet thing. I can hear it. It's trickling down now into the toilet bowl. <laughs> she still looks at me very, very grumpily. 
not wanting me to continue, but I'm going to because she brought this on herself, apparently. As she looks at the toilet paper, she grabs some, she unfoils it from the roll, still stares at me, thinks about tearing some off. The Extinction Movement people are probably a little bit sad that she's used so much toilet paper, she's killed at least four trees. She wipes, and I won't go into too much detail about that because we don't need to go into the full extent of that. She um, puts the toilet paper into the bowl, she pulls up the pants, she closes the toilet lid, she presses the flush. Now, the big question is here, will she wash the hands? Will she? I I don't know. I can't see her. She's gone out of shot of my eyesight right now. Potentially, I can hear a tap running. I'm going to assume that she has washed her hands. She has cleaned the urine from her hands, which means she will have clean hands. And now she is walking back towards me, one foot after the other, looking less than impressed, coming closer and closer to the microphone. Mallory, how was your pee? The (laughs) hands. How was your pee? Awful. <laughs> Why was it awful? You were commentating it. Thanks. All right. Let's go into the next segment. <laughs> Apparently took the week off from this last week, and you're dying to know what happened in Days of Our Pies as we move into the 11th episode of the first season. And you're going to find out what's happening in the 11th episode of the first season. So here is some classic Days of Our Pies. Previously... On Days of Our Pies. Oh my god, it's him! That's the doctor in the car! With Kevin Rudd? Hold it right there, you three! You're all under arrest! Hello, Frank. I see you're still with policemen here. Oh my gosh, Barry? That's right. It's me, Frank. Your brother. Must let me go, as there is a far bigger threat that we need to take care of. Sorry, guys, I have to do my job. You're all under arrest for aiding and abetting a known criminal, as well as for terrorist activities involving the destruction of a public building and for the murder of little Billy Muslibar. I have no idea! Oh my god, gentlemen, look! That's our shop! It's on fire! Greetings, Earthlings. My name is Dip Dap Doo, and as of this moment, your time belongs to me. Like pastry in the oven, these are the days of our pies. I'm Lisa Jones, and these are the days of our pies. had arrived early to Ramsey Bay in an destructive wave of terror. The general store, police station and restaurant had all been destroyed and little red slimy creature Dip Dap Doo had somehow instantly gained the title deed to the entire town. He walked down a long walkway into the main street and confronted general store owners George and Jennifer Pyburn. Please inform me of your titles and identities. Say what now? Your callings and individuality identment. Come again? George, I think he wants to know your name. Ah, uh, it's, uh, Britney Spears. And this is my wife, David Hasselhoff. Okay, Britney and Hasseltop, you are both my slaves. Enter my ship or face peril from below. Oh my gosh, no way! Get stuffed, you little turds Jennifer kicks Dip Dap Doo and sends him flying and runs away with George, who both run towards the police station, which is in ruins. Dip Dap Doo gets into the spaceship and flies after them both, firing at them with a giant laser. Ah, Jennifer! Why must we get shot every second episode? Why must these aliens want to kill us? And why? Oh, oh! 
I'm fine, Jennifer. Just run. Run away. You must go find Frank and the others. I'll be fine. You must go and live your life. Go live your life, Jennifer. Go live. I love you. And I always will. Hey, Judge, I love you. I love you more than I love Oprah. I will send help back to you, I promise. Just go, Jennifer. Go. Jennifer runs away from George, who is then engulfed by a big explosion and smoke. She runs straight towards the police station and notices Frank's car outside before entering the destroyed building. Frank! Frank! Roy! Hello! Is anyone alive? She hears a groan from under the desk. Hello? Hello, who's there? Uh, help me! Help me, I'm trapped! Are you okay? Where are the others? Uh, Barry Doctor was in one of the interrogation rooms. Uh, and I think Kevin Bradley's in a cell of the pain. Where's Frank and Roy? Oh, I don't... No. Agent Victor dies under the desk, leaving Jennifer to search for the others. Hello, can anyone hear me? Jennifer, Jennifer, over here. Roy needs help. Oh my gosh, Frank, what's wrong? Roy, he's stuck under a large piece of concrete. Roy, are you okay? Can you hear me? I'm fine, Jennifer. Just a little bit stuck at the moment. Well, we need to get this off you. We need to go back to George, he was shot. Give me a hand lifting this thing off, and Jennifer. They both attempt lifting it off Roy and eventually get it off him before picking him up and dragging him towards the front of the building before hearing a cry for help. Help! Help! Please, someone help! It's Barry. I must go rescue him. The building is collapsing, Frank. Leave the stick to rotten hell. He's my brother, Roy. I have to go save him. Frank runs off into the next room to save his brother, leaving Jennifer to take Roy to the outside police car to go hunt for George. Just as they both do this, the alien spaceship hovers over the ruins of the police station and points a large gun at it. Farewell, worthless humans. Dip-dap-doo fires a large cannon at the ruins, creating a massive fireball. Jennifer and Roy, however, have jumped in the car in time and driven off at high speed. Oh my gosh! Frank, you stupid man. I told you not to get after him. It's too late for them, Roy. We have to find George now. He's around here somewhere. It's all in the ruins, Jennifer. There's nothing here. Oh my gosh. Stop the car. Stop the car! I saw something! What is it, Roy? Is it George? No, it's not. Oh my gosh, it's me Billy! Roy, Billy's dead. I know, but look! Right there, it's him! Oh my god, it is too! Supposedly dead Billy Muesli Bar walks up to the car and to Roy's window. We need to talk! How on earth did Billy Muesli Bar survive? Have Frank and Barry Doctor survived the second explosion at the police station? Did George survive being shot? And where the hell did Kevin Wright get to? Find out next time on the season finale of Days of Our Pies. The season finale will be next week from season one. What will happen in Ramsey Bay? You will have to tune in and find out. Now, we, we usually would quiz or do things right now. I'm going to quiz Mallory on something very important right now. We've talked to Colin about this a couple of weeks ago, but as the other Canadian in this uh, podcast, um, you actually this week did something to do with the election. The election is now uh, basically two weeks away for Canada. Very exciting times. And uh, you watched... The debate, but tell our listener how you watched the debate. On YouTube, after it was over? I, I meant like... In, in what, French. In French. <laughs> now, what what made you want to watch it in Le Français? Um, you basically made me watch it in French. Well, actually, you wanted to then watch it, and you kept watching it after, well, even after I told you to. Yeah. Okay, and... I... 
I was watching a little bit of it. Something came up on my Facebook, and then I was watching um, a little bit of it, and then you and I were talking about, oh, like, do they all have to speak French? And I honestly didn't know that all of our political leaders need to speak French. It does make sense if they want any votes in Quebec. How, um, ma- how many? There's like 500 leaders, aren't there? Six. Six. See, we were always taught that there were, I think it was five main. I don't know if we were taught about the sixth one in school. So there is the uh, Liberal, who Justin Trudeau is the, that's the governing party. There's uh, Conservatives, who are the main opposition party. There's the alarm going off in the background. Uh, There's the NDP, Mm -hmm. which stands for the Naughty Do-Gooder Party. The um, New Democratic Party. Sorry, I shouldn't. I shouldn't speak bad of these parties because they could be in control and they could deny my visa. Uh, there are the uh, the Quebecois free us because we want our own the country. Bloc Thank you. Uh, there are the Greens, and there is the um, the Vancouver Canucks will never win a Stanley Cup party. No, it's like the People's Party of Canada. So in other words, the Vancouver Canucks will never win the Stanley Cup. They have that bad joke. Um, and you've never voted. Ever, but if you were there right now, based on what you were watching, based on what you've been seeing, would you vote right now? Would you be in in tight? Would you feel like you would want to vote right now? Yes. Really? And what what made you? What has swayed you into the opinion that you might want to vote this election? Why wouldn't I have voted this election? Well, you've never voted before. You don't seem to care. There's only been one vote that I've ever been eligible to vote in. And like I think you that. Didn't. Yeah. <laughs> But I was uneducated and... But now, so now you're saying you would? Yeah. What like, what particular things do you believe in that you would vote for? Oh, look at the kitty cat. <laughs> yes, the, the listener can see the cat right now. What, um, what, what issues are you drawn to? I don't know. I feel like I'm drawn towards environmental issues and tax issues and health issues. Care. What are you? Do know. you want to tell me who you would vote for then, based on those viewpoints? Or do you don't know? I just think that. Okay, where I sit at the moment, I would totally vote NDP. And that's the Singh guy. Yes. Yes. Um, and he is like, I. My understanding is that NDP is the like workers' government. Mm-hmm. Um, which is where I would generally sit as a human living in canada a citizen there we go um i also think that the liberal and well a conservative leader i just want to slap upside the face and like i don't mind trudeau don't get me wrong but i think it's time for change and you only just came in four years ago though you just had change poor justin didn't do it I, I, I'm, and I'm not just saying this to suck up to your fearless country leaders because I want to get into the country, uh, but I like Justin. I, I think from what I have seen, he's done okay. That's, that's just my opinion. Um, I actually, I was very excited. I got to vote this week in a non australia I got to vote in New Zealand. I, for the first time in my life, had voted out of Australia, and my vote didn't end up counting because the person I voted for to be mayor didn't become mayor. But it did count. Well, it counted. Yes, it did. I think that that's not how you should say that. <laughs> but, um, you know, 
that's the democratic process. The thing that I found very interesting about voting here is that, and you saying that you might have a similar process, it's called the first past the post system here. So basically, most people in Australia would be familiar with you vote and you have numbered boxes and you generally either have the option of just putting a number one next to a person and that's it, or if there's 10 candidates, you can go one through to 10 and obviously whoever, say, gets a number nine gets less of a vote than, say, the person who gets number two. Here, I had, say... I think there was like 20 candidates and I had to tick up to 12. Um, so I've not been used to that before. So I just ticked and they're all weighted equally. And you've just Googled this and it appears that you do have this first past the post thingamajig. So it was it was a unique thing. I found it very interesting. But these are the legislative elections here in New Zealand. And the, the unique thing I find about these elections is that they're all on the same day for legislative councils, whereas in Australia that's definitely not the case. And I would probably liken these elections more so to our state-based elections. And would you you have provincial elections? Like, what what are you, what the premier of your provinces? Are they, are they all at the same time or are they just held separately? I couldn't tell you at all. So, yeah, well, that's how they are here, because they don't really have states in New Zealand or anything like that. Melody's already sat down, because I don't know why I'm still talking to you. Do you do you want to stand up and talk? Okay. Well, this segment died, so I guess we're ending it. <laughs> always love bringing you a classic interview, and this week we're going to bring you one of my personal favourites. Way back in 2009, we had a big push, getting a lot of different people on the show, and one of the biggest pushes we had was to get Australia's first ever Winter Olympic gold medalist, the legendary Mr. Stephen Bradbury. One of my favourite interviews of all time. Here it is, our chat that we had with Stephen Bradbury back in 2009. We're extremely honoured to have our next guest here on the brink. He was a member of the 5,000 metre short track speed skating relay team that claimed Australia's first ever Winter Olympic medal in 1994 and became the first ever Australian Winter Olympic gold medalist in 2002 after his iconic last man standing victory in the 1,000 metres. He's also been honoured with the Order of Australia for his contribution to short track speed skating as well as being named one of Australia's 100 great Olympians. Please welcome to the brink, Stephen Bradbury. Stephen, thank you very much for your time today. Too easy. How you doing? Doing fantastic. Stephen, how about yourself? Yeah, it's, uh, it's quite balmy in Queensland here today. But it's, nice. <laughs> it's nice and uh, getting a bit warmer here in Hobart. I'm sure we're not as hot as you guys are up there at the moment. Definitely not. No, I think we're looking at about 35 today. <laughs> we'll be lucky to reach 30, but for us, that's a nice hot day. I'm sure you would be, though, being a, a speed skater, you'd be used to a bit of the cold weather, though, wouldn't you? Yeah, well, I've been retired for... Well, eight years or so now. It, uh, I did spend most of my life going from winter to winter, so the moment I retired, I've been enjoying summers most definitely. Sounds good to me. Now, what originally made you want to get into the sport of short track speed skating? Uh, my dad used to do it. He was a national champ a couple of times in the uh, in the mid-60s here in Australia. That's kind of as far as the sport went back then, so he never got to, uh, to really see where he sat internationally, but uh, he got me into it as a youngster, and yeah, I... I suppose had a bit of talent as a kid and uh, and was able to save off some of those things that a lot of athletes don't fulfil their dreams through, you know, alcohol girls, that sort of thing when you get to your early <laughs> teens. And, uh, yeah, was able to kind of make the world championship team when I was 15 and, and see the sport globally and uh, took it from there. Was there a reason why you chose short track over long track? Was your dad into short track more so than the long track? Um, well, we don't actually have any long track rinks in Australia. Long track is... Uh, is a 400-metre ice rink, like an athletics oval, and you actually race against the clock rather than against other skaters, so the fastest time wins. 
short track is on a normal size rink where they would play ice hockey or where you'd go general skating. So one lap is 111 metres and you actually race in packs on the same track. So it's uh, four skaters in a race. If you finish first or second in your race, you move through to the next round of the competition until you get to the finals and you figure out the medals. So I considered going long track a couple of times in my career because I my body shape was probably more suited to long track than short track being being one of the bigger guys on the ice in short track but I would have had to move overseas to do long track and didn't want to do that. Do you think that considering that you've mentioned that we don't have a long track uh, skating rink in Australia do you think that's something that maybe in the future they'll consider or do you think we're just focused on the short track? Oh, long track rink is a big call to build in Australia they're, uh, they're massive massive facilities you know you think the size of an athletics track and you've got to build that out of ice and you know, realistically put a roof over it. Uh, I don't think it's dollars and cents are going to stack up to build one of those in Australia. They do have a fantastic facility that's almost complete, um, a dual ice rink surface at Docklands in Melbourne, which is going to be the, the centre for Australian ice sports with the, the National Short Track Program will be shifting from Brisbane to Melbourne. It's uh, due to open in about uh, two months' time, so they're, they're hoping to get it open just before the Winter Olympics. Do you think that will then increase the chances of, say, Australia getting more success when it comes to the Winter Olympics? Um, well, it definitely will in short track. I mean, we have a good result in short track over the years, but uh, those rinks being built, and uh, hopefully there'll be some, some funding for development of the sport, so we we should you know be able to target maybe an eight-year plan and, and hopefully have some new skaters coming into the sport that will compete for us at the Olympics in 2018. Was it a difficult sport to get established in, considering Australia isn't generally known for our winter sports? Yeah, it's certainly not mainstream, that's for sure, and it's, it's not going to be a sport that takes up a lot of television time in Australia <laughs> anytime soon. It, uh, you know, it, it, hits the, it hits pretty hard every time the Winter Olympics is on every four years, and it is an exciting sport. It's a sport that, you know, it's got, it's got the element of danger, it's fast, and it's, uh, you know, you have to be strong, you have to be fit, and you know, it, it combines all the elements of sport that a human being needs to get good at to succeed in. It's, uh, you know, it's not just about being really endurance-based fit. It's not just about being super strong like a weightlifter. You know, you've got to have a, a, uh, a supreme mix of everything. But probably, the, probably the, one of the key ingredients is, is lactic acid tolerance, being able to uh, cope with the, that pain build up in your muscles and not slow down. And uh, that's probably the key ingredient in, in short track. Lactic acid tolerance. That's a terminology I don't think I've ever heard before, Stephen. I'm, I'm <laughs> sure you could, you could, if you could promote that well enough, you could get more kids involved, promote the danger aspect you're saying, the excitingness, and then, you know, it could be primetime TV action, you know, in eight-year plan. Yeah, well, it's a, good, it's a good television sport. Unfortunately, the speed doesn't quite cross over. I mean, you do 55 kilometres an hour, which wow. is when you're standing next to the barrier at the ice rink and a guy goes past you doing 55 k's an hour, it just looks insanely fast. And, and when you hit the barrier doing over 50 kilometres an hour and you stop, that's fairly exciting to watch as well. <laughs> no, I can but, see uh, why they have the barriers there. Yeah, well, they're padded. But, uh, television doesn't quite do it justice. But, um, you know, even still, you know, as a TV sport, confined in such a small arena with the crowd being right on top of it, you know, the atmosphere at the Olympics just blows your mind. It's incredible. And that was always your goal, to reach the Olympics? Now, once I made the national team when I was 15, yeah, I wanted to make the Olympics and 
see if I could be the best in the world. And you got that chance, I suppose, in 2002, of course, with your gold medal. Now, of course, back in the early 90s, Australia did win the World Championship uh, in 1991. Did you feel disappointed being listed as a reserve for the 1992 Olympics? Um, I was actually part of the team in 91 when we won the World Championship and uh, had some very good form leading into the 1992 Winter Olympics, which was my first. But, uh, that was about a month or two before the Games, and I got a bit of a knee injury, and I started messing with my equipment. You know, your, your blades are actually bent, offset, angled. Everything is turned is geared towards turning left, and it is an art to get your equipment set up properly. And, and back then, that art wasn't re- as refined as well as what it is now, and I just couldn't find that feel. And... Uh, basically lost the plot in the lead-up to the Winter Olympics and ended up sitting on the sidelines as the reserve, which was very disappointing, especially as we were the favourites to win the relay, being the uh, the reigning world champions. And uh, it was even more disappointing to see Richard Nozelski, who was arguably our strongest skater at the time, kick one of the blocks and fall down, and we didn't get a medal there. But uh, we were able to come back at the next Winter Olympics and, and get that bronze medal you spoke of in the lead-up, Australia's first Winter Olympic medal. And that must have been a fantastic feeling to know that you're part of history and you'll always go down as being part of that team that claimed Australia's first Winter Olympic medal. Yeah, it was pretty cool. Uh, <laughs> that was, you know, that was our goal. We knew that we were one of the strongest three relay teams in the world and, you know, in some ways a little disappointed that we only got the bronze. But um, being that we were able to take the monkey off the back, so to speak, I mean, there'd been a lot of contenders over the years in Australian winter sports that had possible chances to get medal. Danny Carr and and Colin Coates in long track speed skating were probably two of the names that could have got it in the past but didn't. It's, uh, we were able to, to do that, and uh, that was an incredible moment to, to share with your teammates. And, and the nation was, you know, was gripped by short track speed skating for five minutes in 1994. <laughs> better, better five minutes than none at all then, Stephen. Yeah. <laughs> Give, give it eight years later, and I suppose we, we got a bit more gripped with that. Now, in the between when you won the medal uh, in 1994, and of course when you included with the gold medal in 2002, you suffered a couple of serious injuries in your career, including getting sliced in the leg and also breaking your neck. After those injuries, were there any doubts in your mind? Did you think, that's it, you're never going to be skating again? Um, when I got my leg cut open, that was an extremely serious injury. I have six litres of blood, and I lost four of them on the ice in about 60 seconds. Uh, funny you know you learn a lot about yourself when you're put in a life and death situation like that one and I learned a lot about myself then and you know kind of realized how much power that you really do have inside yourself when you when you're faced with the possibility that you might die and and I was able to use that as a positive when I came back to the sport I was only 21 so it never entered my head that I wouldn't skate again it was it was only a matter of when I felt as though I had a lot of unfinished business I got my leg back up at the same strength, but I unfortunately never got the power back in it, that explosive power that I had prior to getting my leg cut open. So that was something that I always had to contend with in the back of my mind. And, you know, from from 94 onwards, not having that explosive power, how much was I down on what I could be? But um, I was able to put that out of my head. The other one was when I broke my neck, which was only 18 months before winning the gold medal, and that was a different story. I was in a halo brace, one of those things that gets screwed into your skull and you look like a human building soft. <laughs> I was wearing one of those for about a month and a half, and I had a lot of time to think, and it came down to, OK, I was arguably past my best at that stage. I'd raced for Australia at three Winter Olympic Games, and the bottom line was that I hadn't done my best at any of those Olympics, 
and that's the biggest stage in the world, you know, where you're supposed to produce everything and, and more that you know you got in yourself. And I knew that I hadn't done it. And really, that was all that mattered, you know. Chance to win. I was the favourite to win the 1,000 metres in, in 94, and I got knocked down in the first round. In 98, in Japan, I, I had good chances to win there too, but I got sick in the lead-up to the Olympics, and I didn't skate well. You know, when I broke my neck a couple of years before Salt Lake, I decided that that was where I was, the, the big turning point in my career, whether I was going to keep going for that next 18 months or not. And I thought I decided that I don't really have an option here. You know, I've, I've trained my guts out of this sport for 10 years, and I'm not satisfied because I haven't done my best at the Olympics. And all I wanted to do up to that point was win a gold medal. I didn't have one. Chances are I wasn't getting one. So I decided I've got to change my goals, and I reevaluated and said, OK, I'm going to skate. I'm going to do that last year and a half. I make it to Salt Lake City, and I'm going to skate. When I do, I don't care where I finish anymore. Probably not going to go get a gold medal. I'm probably not going to get any medals. But as long as I could get off the ice after one race and say to myself that I finally came to the Olympic Games and did my best, well, then I decided it didn't really matter where I finished anymore. And 18 months of hard work over the course of 12 wasn't that much anyway. So I was just <laughs> going to get off my ass and do it and see what happened after that. Of course, in the quarterfinals, you were originally eliminated, but before the defending world champion from Canada, uh, Mark Gagnon, I believe his name was, uh, he was disqualified, and that moved you into the semis. When you were originally eliminated, did you think, that's it, you know, I've got to concentrate on my other events, or did you sort of have slight hope that he might be getting disqualified with the events that were happening on the ice at the time? Um, yeah, I, I thought that, and... <sighs> You know, I crossed the line third in that in that quarter final and you know, I remember looking at the at the draw list before that quarter final and you know, I kinda of swallowed and got a lump in my throat because that quarter final was absolutely stacked. You know, I had the toughest one on paper by far with, with Mark Gagnon, who was four time world champion and, and Apollo Arno, the American who was the favourite. And you gotta finish first or second to get through to the next round and you know, in short track at that stage there was the big four and those those two guys were two of them so to knock one of them off was going to be a tall order. For me, in that quarterfinal, I skated the house down. Uh, I made my move at the right time. I was on the front from six laps to go through till about one and a half. Maybe I spent a bit too much of my legs maintaining that speed on the front, but, you know, there was a, there was a few eyebrows starting to be raised after I'd been on the front for four laps. It was, could I hang on and win it? And, you know, I thought I might be able to do that for a second too, but, yeah, unfortunately, the legs got a bit tired and uh, Apollo and Gagnon got by me. And... Fortunately for me, Gagnon got disqualified for a movie made on the Japanese guy in the race, uh, Tamura Namoya, and uh, that elevated me through to the semi-finals. But no, I wasn't disappointed because I knew that that was the race where I'd put it all on the line and I'd, I'd given everything that I could give and you know, I was able to put those demons to rest the previous three games and finally do my best at the Olympics. Yeah, so I mean, even if you had have gone out in that quarterfinal and Gagnon wasn't actually disqualified, you still would have held your head up high after those games knowing that you put that effort in that you were talking about before. Oh, totally. That was... You know, that was the true meaning of success for me right there in that quarterfinal. And, you know, if I had gone out in that quarterfinal and not through to the semis, I wouldn't be talking to you today. <laughs> but uh, I'd be as satisfied in my head. And, uh, you know, and, and for me, in the, in the big scheme of things, the gold medal was fantastic and it was, and it was the ultimate way to finish my career. But... It wasn't the true meaning of success. Now, of course, in the semi-finals, you um, went through after there was a crash, of course, too, on the final lap. But there's one lap remaining in the final. You're fifth, you're last. You're getting ready to congratulate the gold medalists. Are you thinking about a nice warm shower and just sort of thinking to yourself, oh, I made the final. That's a good reward for what I've just been achieving all my life. Yeah, I was, I was excited to be in the final. Uh, I was realistic that at 28 years of age and the oldest skater, not just in the final, the oldest skater in the entire short track field, that four races in two hours was probably going to be a bit too much for my legs because you go through 
heats, the quarters, the semis, with about half an hour rest in between. So from the heat to the final is about two hours, maybe two and a half. And uh, I was, you know, kind of realistic for that lactic acid thing I spoke of earlier. The recovery might not quite be there for that fourth race in two hours. And I was also pretty confident, and after speaking with my coach, that the other guys in the final, none of them were interested in picking up the silver or the bronze. The other four guys in that final, they all wanted to win. And that meant that there could be a good chance of an accident or some kind of mishap on the last lap. It didn't look like that was going to be the case. I'd, I'd gotten tired and dropped off about 15 metres, which for me was disappointing because I was a stronger skater than that. And, you know, to drop off in the final at the Olympics was, for me, not, not a big highlight. I like to watch the races where I actually skated my best. And, you know, in truth, that wasn't one of them. Chinese guy fell down into the last turn and I thought well that moves me up to fourth that's not really any better than fifth and setting up my final turn I saw the other three guys go down out of the corner of my eye and I knew from them that I didn't need to skate anymore I just had to get around that final corner and glide across the finish line and I was going to go across first I didn't know if I should celebrate or hide in the corner I just remember the images though just that look on your face it was fantastic and it just it brought out something in Australia. You were talking about before how sort of every four years we pay attention to the Winter Olympics, but there was just something about that moment. It not only spoke volumes for Australian sport and an Olympic sport, but also just the true Australian spirit. I mean, you, you may have been 15 metres and last behind, like you were saying before, but you didn't give up. You could have just pulled off or, you know, deliberately crashed, but you kept going. You held on. You won the gold medal. And no matter what anybody says, Stephen, you are an Olympic gold medalist and they can never take that away from you. Moments like that, and you know, and there's there's countless ones of them in you know in Australian sport over the years. You might think of uh, think of Dean Lucan or somebody like that winning the uh, winning the gold medal at the '84 Olympics, Absolutely. or John Seaman or Duncan Armstrong. You know, those those moments just just stick in your mind. Or Kieran Perkins at, at Atlanta '96, and you know, for me, it's at the moment with all this Crawford Report stuff coming out saying that uh, you know that funding Olympic sports isn't value for money. It, it just makes me cringe on the inside that you know Australians could be deprived of those of those future moments because we're not prepared to to fund the lower profile Olympic sports as such. And you know I've had people tell me that that moment was the most Australian thing they've ever seen. And uh, you know for me, those kind of Olympic moments are right at the top in in the Australian psyche and and things that Australian people value. So it'd be very disappointing to see. Olympic sports fall off the radar because they're not going to get funded anymore. I couldn't agree with you more about that, Stephen. We're talking about that in the show today, actually. And considering that I don't think there's an event anywhere in the world that draws together the world as much as the Olympics and brings a country like Australia, whether you like sport or hate it, everybody still pays attention to the Olympics. And it it does. It brings a nation together. And I couldn't agree with you more saying that those moments are just burnt into people's memories. And as I mentioned in the introduction before, of course, uh, you named one of Australia's 100 greatest Olympians as well because of that one moment. I mean, that must just be fantastic as well. Yeah, yeah, that's that's pretty cool. It's, uh, you know, it's always nice to be remembered for something you did, but, you know, for me, it's it's continually rewarding to know that, you know, through something that I did, I'm able to provide inspiration to others. You know, even today, people, you know, people refer to that last man standing, never giving up, doing a Bradbury thing, and, you know, through, through the motivational speaking that that I've become fairly proficient at these days, talking in, uh, in corporate land or at schools or sportsman's nights or whatever. You know, I'm, I love the, the feeling that I'm able to, to give to other people to just, you know, maybe sit back and think, yeah, you know, if I try a bit harder at, at this goal of mine that I've got, whether it's in their business or their sport or, or whatever, 
it's uh, the rewards are there if I'm if I'm prepared to stick it out. Absolutely, Stephen, and you certainly are an inspiration to many. I, I give you that one. Now, um, just before we're getting towards the end of the interview here, but um, how do you think Australia will fare in a couple of months' time when it comes to Vancouver next year? Well, we we have our strongest Winter Olympic team to date, no question. Uh, the team is packed to the rafters with uh, with medal chances. The team will be probably 35 to 40 athletes. Um, we have Tora Bright, who's the number one women's snowboard halfpipe rider in the world. Uh, Jackie Cooper and Lydia Lasilla, who are arguably the two biggest favourites in women's aerials. Dale Beek-Smith, our expat Canadian who won a gold medal for us in Torino. Absolutely, I remember that. years ago, and he'll be one of the favourites for the men's moguls. And then there's a, there's a whole host of others in, in, in other sports. Tatiana Borodolina who is an expat Russian who now is skating for Australia, who will be one of the big contenders to win a, a medal in, in the women's 500 metres in short track speed skating. The list goes on. Jenny Owens in ski cross, Damon Haler in, in ski cross. Uh, yeah, the, the team is just really thick, and there's, uh, there's no numbers fillers in our 35 to 40 athletes. So. <laughs> Realistically, we could get four or five medals in Vancouver next Feb. And that would be fantastic, definitely, to come back from a Winter Olympics. And considering you were talking before about the um, the report about the Olympic funding, to come back from Vancouver, here's five medals. Shove this in your face, Australian government. This is what we need, you know. This is shove this up your blunt and smoke it. Give us more money. Yeah, damn straight. I like your uh, I like your adjectives there, Ben. <laughs> I try to calm it down a bit. <laughs> and in winter sports, with our our eight program winter sports that we have as part of the Olympic Winter Institute, they're all so limited numbers with the athletes that are amongst them that you know, they don't really require that much funding because there's, there's such a small group of athletes in them, but those athletes are in the top level in the world and they're 100% committed to, to bringing back medals from Vancouver. So, you know, in my mind, it's it's pretty good value for money, really, because there's not that many athletes to fund. Absolutely. And you were saying before there's only about 35 to 40 members. I and mean, compare that to our Summer Olympics team, which is a couple of hundred people. So, I mean, you look at your value for money and you bring, say, four or five medals out of a team of 40. I mean, that's what, like one in every eight people comes home with a medal? You don't get that for the Summer Olympics. No, definitely not. Now, look, Stephen, um, just before we wrap things up with our five questions we'd like to ask our guests, I should mention, too, that uh, down here with the brink, we're trying to bring the Olympics to Hobart. We're trying for the 2020 summer games we have spoken about possibly trying to get a combined winter effort in there now if we were to include short track and actually you actually have to have summer summer (laughs) well that's true this is the thing we'd probably be more of a chance at the winter games you know because it's nice and cold even in summer but if we were to hold short track speed skating and we could say you know organize the event so the competitors were to fall over in the last corner like they did in salt lake could we coax you out of retirement to win a gold medal at a home olympics yeah well maybe you could freeze over the and, uh, <laughs> or, or, you know, freeze over the Sydney to Hobart and I'll skate my way down. <laughs> Have an outdoor <laughs> speed skating, back like the classic Olympics. <laughs> None of this artificial yeah. ice stuff. You know, we, we have natural ice in Hobart. That would work a treat. Yeah, I'm not sure how your uh, Olympic aspirations are going to work out down there, but I wish you every success nonetheless. <laughs> oh, they're going very well, Stephen, I assure you that. Now, um, just as I said, we'll wrap things up with a set of questions we'd like to ask our guests. It'll only be whittled down to four questions due to the fact that one of our questions we can't ask because my co-host isn't with me. So if you're nice, ready and relaxed, these questions aren't that hard to answer. So I wish you all the best of luck with them, Stephen. First of all, what is your favourite type of cheese? Better. Extra tasty. Extra tasty. 
Tasty. Got to love the extra part in front of the Tasty there. It makes it extra good. Are you a folder or a scruncher? Definite folder. Oh, Not again. Like scrunching thing at all. Yes, we're, we're on that bandwagon here too on the show. <laughs> Folding people are intelligent people and they're Olympic gold medalists. We can use that as a slogan. That works well, Stephen. I like your thinking. Question number three. Are we alone in the universe? Ooh, doo-doo, doo-doo, Ah, yes. Yes! We have our first ever yes. Really, what's your thinking on that one, Stephen? May I ask you that? Uh, I, I don't, I don't buy into any of this um, extraterrestrial activity until they can show me some solid proof. <laughs> I like that groundwork and proof. You are our first ever guest to ever answer yes to that question. That's another first you can put on your resume. <laughs> Fantastic. And our final question we want to ask you here today, Stephen, is what event would you like to see at the Hobart 2020 Olympics? Can be anything. doesn't have to be a sport. It can be dodgeball or bullfrog riding, anything. Let your imagination run wild, Stephen. Ooh, geez, there's so many things going through my head right now. How about the sheep toss? The sheep toss. I like that. New Zealand would do well on that one. <laughs> they might take that a bit the wrong way, though, and think of it something else. <laughs> Thanks very much, Stephen. That about wraps it up for our interview with you today. Thank you very much for your time and wish you all the best of luck with your commentating for the Olympics in February and everything else in your life that goes your way. Thank you very much, Ben. And, uh, yeah, looking forward to the, the Winter Games. You can check that on, on Channel 9 and is broadcasting that and starting on February 12th. Of course, most people listening to this show would know that Mallory and I host a weekly radio show in Southland, in Invercargill to be precise, on Radio Southland 96.4 FM. It is called the Ben Amal Variety Hour, Wednesday evenings, 8pm New Zealand time, so that makes it about 6pm Australian time, and we have a lot of fun, and I want to play a couple of snippets from the last couple of weeks for you to show you how much fun we actually have. The first uh, we like to call hashtag ducks can drown. And the bit after that follows that I like to call speaking Dutch. Check these out. There's also baby ducklings right now. They're really cute. No, we can't have ducklings. <laughs> we don't have any water for them to swim in. Uh, hashtag a dog Actually, bot. ducklings can drown. I found this out today. Uh, usually so, any living creature can drown. They have lungs. But like, it's common <gasps> for ducklings to drown if you give them they too much water. They live on the water. water. No, but if you... It's eat. common for most things to drown if you give them too much water. <laughs> Just, just FYI, just in case you were w- wanting to put me in a, submerge me in a bunch of water this evening. It's all right, Ben, you can handle it. <laughs> Have some water. It's all right, you're human. Go over town. Drown. Are you not going to drown? Sorry. Basically, if you give a duckling too much water when it's a duckling, it'll fall asleep, like sitting in the water, and Usually then it you drowns. fall asleep when you're drowning because you go no. unconscious and you've got no oxygen. I don't, I don't understand how this is any different to anyone else <laughs> drowning. Ducklings aren't unique in the grand scheme of death. Like Only ducklings can drown. That's what we're discovering. Out of all the creatures in the animal kingdom, everyone is invincible to drowning except the ducklings. It's just in my mind, a duckling shouldn't be something that will drown because it lives. If you were on talking about water. a fish drowning, I would be like, yeah, okay, yep, that's a, that's a fun fact. A fish drowning. What are the odds? But like a duck that spends most, it's it's not amphibious. It breathes oxygen. Yes, it can drown. Sorry, you were saying about a duckling is susceptible to drowning. Moving on to our next song. More so than other creatures. Moving on to our next song. Will Smith had a birthday last week. He turned 51. Happy birthday, Will Smith. Hashtag a dot bob. Hashtag a dot bog. Hashtag ducks can drown. (laughs) 
I, I don't even know what to say to that. That is that is maybe the most ridiculous list I've ever heard in my entire life. Like, I'm just going to, next week, I'm going to put one on this website, because I think it's user-submitted, the top ten words invented by Ben Waterworth. Oogly boogly, woody de nee nee nee, chicky de boo goo boo, wookie dee 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 dee, leepity bitty boo boogie boo, flobber da flippity, neetity neetity, peppity peppity, moo, and my favourite word, honk. There. I feel like that list is very closely accurate to my. um. My little guy impression. What are they called? Ewoks. Ewoks. Actually, you know, you know what that was. Uh, I hope Charlotte's listening because I just spoke Dutch. Oh, look at you <laughs> go! Look at me. I didn't even know it. I can speak Dutch. Wow. Twelve the Dutch people out there. Yeah, boogity boogity. <laughs> so, so I hope you're enjoying your evening. Funny times, fun times, good times. And if you want to hear the full episode of those show, the best epi- the best way I should say to go do that is radiosouthland.org.nz click on the podcast section and you can find our show there and download it there or of course you can stream it directly from radiosouthland.org.nz wednesday evenings 8 p.m new zealand time that's 6 p.m australian eastern standard time or it's also replayed on a friday evening 6 p.m new zealand time 4 p.m australian eastern standard time so tune in to the ben and mal variety hour Time to close off the show, and you can come to the microphone, please, because, you know, generally this is the part where people want to hear you talk. What's the matter, Grumpy? What's the matter? A white pizza. <laughs> she wants... What have I made oh, for dinner? dang it! I forgot to go to Starbucks and get my guacamole! Oh, what well... What time is it? If only you had gotten up. What time do they close? Oh, I can get there and back in time. Can you get me a coffee while you're down there, please? Uh, no, the coffee machine's... Well, maybe. A nice coffee. I need to I need to go right now, though. Okay, then. We'll say goodbye to our listener. Keep sucking those oranges. Is it time? Yeah, can just, I? just yeah, go. Yeah. I'll keep, keep just sucking. go. Go away. Don't want you here anymore. I'll have a nice coffee. Thank you very much. Um, <laughs> this, is, this is the thing. You would think we would be professional about this and edit these things out, but um, clearly not. Can you turn the oven off, please? Thank you. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm glad that people who listen to this get a great insight into our lives. They learn the big things about ovens being turned off and people going to get guacamole. Anyway. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, subscribe on all the relevant channels and uh, tune in every week for a fantastic insight into our lives and everything else because this is apparently what happens. Uh, As you heard Mallory say, keep sucking those oranges, Hobart, and good night. (laughs) 